As you're able, go ahead and make your way back to your seats. And if you feel so led, you can go ahead and turn in a Bible to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be getting there in a moment. It's also printed for you in your bulletin beginning on page 7. Again, as we start our Advent series this Sunday, we'll be getting into Genesis 3 in just a moment. Before we do that, I want to read something else to you that is perhaps just as familiar, though nowhere near as inspired as Genesis 3. But see if this sounds familiar. Do you see what I see? A star, a star dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. Do you hear what I hear ringing through the sky, shepherd boy? Do you hear what I hear, a song, a song high above the trees with a voice as big as the sea? Do you know what I know in your palace wall, mighty king? Do you know what I know, a child, a child shivers in the cold, let us bring him silver and gold. Pray for peace, people everywhere. Listen to what I say, the child, the child sleeping in the night, he will bring us goodness and light. The lyrics, I'm sure, are familiar to most uh, here this morning, that Christmas song or Christmas carol, uh, Do You Hear What I Hear? If you're familiar, it's not a, obviously a traditional uh, Christian Christmas carol. Um, in fact, if you notice, it sort of jumbles scriptural references, and if you were to read the whole song, it kind of mismatches some, uh, some scripture. It was a secular hymn, if you want to call it that, or a secular carol originally written, actually during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so as you noticed, you know, kind of underlying some of those themes and underlying some of those lyrics uh, beyond the scriptural story is this sort of feeling of fear, uh, this feeling of, of hope and, and, and longing, this kind of tempered optimism, if you notice, that maybe someone would come, maybe it was a child, maybe someone would come, can you hear it, can you see it, um, who would bring peace, who would bring ultimate peace and bring our world to rest. But as I was reflecting on that, and I had heard this carol you know, on the radio, and so I began to kind of read about it and was reflecting on it, I began to think how there is something, though, there is something to the fact that tucked away in all of our Christmas carols, or really, if you even expand that, tucked away in all of the, the songs that endure, not just Christmas carols, but the songs that endure you know, across genre, or songs that endure across uh, generations, that all of our enduring stories even, move beyond songs now, all of our enduring stories, think of uh, Star Wars, right? There's the the final installment, at least they say, the final, I have a feeling they're going to make more money somehow, right? But the final installment is supposed to come out, right, here around Christmas, uh, the rise of Skywalker. Think of Star Wars, think of, you know, Lord of the Rings, think of uh, the King Arthur legend, think even of very basic enduring fairy tales, that you read to your children or your grandchildren. There's something to the fact that tucked away in the carols, tucked away in the songs that endure, tucked away in the stories of our cultures that endure, there is this unspoken but very much felt longing. There is this hope. 
There is, again, this tempered optimism, this expectant hope and waiting and longing for ultimately the one who has been chosen to come, the one who has been anointed to come. Again, the Messiah means literally the anointed one, but as we know, we can see that theme of there being a chosen one in all of these stories and songs. Again, think of Star Wars, you know, uh, the last Jedi will come, the true Jedi, the heir to the Jedi uh, way will come, and what will he or she bring? Come on, some Star Wars fans, what will they bring? Balance to the force, right? They'll bring balance to the force. Or think in Lord of the Rings, you know, King Aragorn will come. The rightful king will come back to his throne and again set all things right and vanquish the darkness. The King Arthur legend, again, the one who would come. So again, tucked away in these stories and these songs is this expectant, Longing for ultimately that one who will come and bring everlasting peace. That one, thinking our fairy tales, that one who will come and rescue the people, rescue the princess, that one who will come and slay the dragon, who will vanquish the enemy and again attain their rightful throne. It's no accident that this is a common theme, an enduring theme, perhaps the theme of themes. That, per, you know, that, that is pervasive through all stories and songs and movies and tales and cultures. And so the question, of course, then is raised, well, where does this enduring theme ultimately come from? <laughs> How is it that, again, through every genre, through every generation, through every culture, this storyline has made its way into the world? How is it that yet you, perhaps this morning, even feel that sense of longing, that when Advent comes, it does tap into something that you yourself already feel throughout life, throughout the world, this expectant longing. Well, we know the answer as Christians, right? The answer, the reason this storyline is pervasive and it's enduring is because, again, all of these lesser stories, the King Arthur tale, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, all of these songs, all these things are ultimately echoes of a voice. Are they not? They're echoes of a voice. They're ultimately derivative of the story, the story of stories that we find in the scripture, that we find beginning to reach its fulfillment in the advent, in the gospel Narratives. And so all of these authors, whether it's, you know, Tolkien, whether it's even, uh, you know, George Lucas, who would be in no way, you know, have a Christian worldview, but all of these authors, right, why do they tap into those things? Well, because, as we know, all of these authors, whether they be songwriters, you know, uh, script writers, these are all people made in the image of that true storyteller. These are people made in the image of the God of gods, the one who authored the greater story. As Ecclesiastes tells us in the Old Testament, eternity has been set in the heart of every man and woman. There is something inside of us that though it's been tainted by sin, though it's been fractured and marred, is still connected to its original author, is still connected to its original 
story. And so therefore, everything we create, whether you know, art of any kind, even in stories, is ultimately derivative. It ultimately is connected to that first and greatest storyteller. And it's connected to that first and greatest story, again, that we find in Scripture. And so as we turn there, and again, take your Bible and turn to one of these early, early stories, Genesis 3, we're told right from the beginning, we're told why it is that every person who has ever lived, every person in every culture, time period, generation, ultimately longs for rescue. And we're told that is so because in the first, in the beginning, there was a rebellion. There was a fall. That battle lines were drawn in the great war of good versus evil. And so again, go to Genesis 3, a familiar text, I realize, but one that builds the blocks upon which Advent ultimately stands. And so look, in Genesis 3, verse 1, we're going to read the whole text just as one sweeping story. Okay, don't worry if you're looking at your watch, get nervous. How long is the sermon going to be? We're not going to go verse by verse, all right? This is just a big picture story for us, all right? Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drew out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, a familiar text, one that has so many implications But as we think just towards Advent, it helps us answer the question. The question of why Advent? Why did Christ come into the world? Why the expectant longing in the heart of every man, woman, and child? And you see, Genesis 3 reminds us, and it tells us, the reason is because we were all born in captivity. We were all born in captivity. That long ago, the representatives of The human race, Adam and Eve, they were designed by God to be king and queen, really. It's okay for us to think in that category. They were designed and positioned to function, really, as king and queen of the earth. That to be made in the image of God has a host of implications, but beyond just merely some attributes that we share on a much lesser scale than God, to be made in the image of God really speaks towards their role. It speaks more towards a function. That Adam and Eve were designed to image God, to represent God, to be ambassadors of God on the earth, to be his co-rulers, really. Again, to be kings and queens over the earth, The same way that God has the sons of God, you can read about them in Job and other places, these divine beings, heavenly beings that he actually uses, he employs to govern the unseen world. Well, Adam and Eve are the ones placed on earth to govern the physical world, to govern the earth, to again rule under God's ultimate rule and to image him, to represent him, to be his ambassadors to the creation. Yet what happens? What happens is that one of those heavenly beings, as we know, later referred to as Satan, well, he himself led a former rebellion. He himself led a former fall. And you see, Satan here, as he's represented in the serpent, is no fool. If he can turn the hearts of those earthly rulers, if he can turn the hearts of those earthly image bearers, here's where the Star Wars parallel is actually uncanny, If he can turn their hearts to the dark side, then what will happen? What will happen? Well, man, that would be a pivotal move for him. Again, in the war versus good and evil, as battle lines are being drawn, if he can turn their hearts, then perhaps, just perhaps, he can win the war that he started long ago. And so this first scene, as we've read it, and again, it's so familiar, it kind of loses a lot of times its power, But this first scene reminds us that as cosmic history unfolds, just for a moment, if you don't know the ending, hit, hit the pause button for a minute, just for a moment here in Genesis 3 as it stands alone, it seems that this deceiver, this figure, this Satan might actually win the day. And how does he do it? How does he do it? He convinces them Again, the kings and queens of the earth. He convinces them that just perhaps for a moment, they're being shortchanged. 
They're being shortchanged. And so he comes along and tries to pitch them a better offer, right? He kind of begins to ask the question, what kind of king and queen isn't actually allowed to eat of every tree in the garden they've been given? What kind of king and queen is that, right? Oh, my friends, he says, you've been given a raw deal. King and queen? Oh, man, I don't think so. You guys are just puppet rulers, right? Puppet rulers. I know this isn't going to help everybody, but if you're a sports fan, this is like, you know, Jason Garrett coaching the Dallas Cowboys, all right? Who's really in charge? Jerry Jones, the owner, okay? Only a few of you get that. That's okay. All right? If you play basketball with LeBron James, you might be a head coach, but you're no coach. He's the real coach. LeBron James, all right? Again, this is a puppet ruler scenario where Adam and Eve are given the, the title, but with no real power is what Satan is saying. Kings and queens, I don't think so. But I tell you what, you can be like God. You can be like God. You can be a God yourself. And so again, it works its way into their minds. They rebel, as we know. Their minds are poisoned. Their hearts are darkened, and they fall. They fall. And again, make no mistake about this, right? This is not about fruit, ultimately, okay? This is cosmic treason that's happened here. Cosmic treason. Adam and Eve, the king and queen of all the earth, the representatives of the newly formed human race, right there in the garden. They plunge us all into sin. They plunge us all into exile. That's what's imaged for us there in the expulsion from the, from the garden. That the human race is now in exile. The human race is now in captivity. The human race has now been barred from the garden. And you see, that's why all of us, as we know from birth, are predisposed to sin. Predisposed to sin and to darkness. We're held captive again by the great deceiver. But how does the story unfold? You see, we're told, though, that try as he may, for all of his efforts, for all of his designs, that Satan couldn't fully erase that original image of God, that original connection. That's, again, why when we hear these songs or we hear these stories, even if someone is an unbeliever, it taps into something inside of them. It taps into something they themselves feel and experience. You see, try as he may, Satan could not ultimately erase the image of God, the connection, that original voice that we know and recognize, again, that echo, that longing for home, that longing for rescue. So again, the question is before us, why Advent? Why does Christ have to come? Because there was an original plan, an original desire on the part of God, again, to share in his kingdom, to share in his heavenly delight, to give us the unspeakable privilege of ruling with him, and yet what do we do? We, again, we take the lesser offer. We exchange it for the lie. But God's original plan was for us to rule with him, to be with him. But for some, there was that fall, right? For the first parents, and for everyone after them, all of us included, there's been a fall. There's been a fall. 
where we too, we wouldn't put it this way necessarily, but we too feel the temptation of that offer. We too want to be our own gods, and so we too now are marred with sin. We too feel the experiences of the curse. We too are born into the realization that we cannot help ourselves. We're captives to sin. We find ourselves, you want to think of it this way, in the employ of the evil empire from birth. From birth. And for some, it suits them just fine. They embrace that identity. But for some, again, we feel the longing. We feel the brokenness. We feel that something isn't right. We're the chosen, the remnant. We long for advent. We long for deliverance. And if that's you this morning, and I pray that it is, if you are one who is a Christian, then as we know, the fall wasn't the final word. The fall wasn't the final word. For if you noticed, even in this story, even the story of Genesis 3, tucked away in that story of the fall, we see God at work, don't we? We see, to borrow that phrase from C.S. Lewis, we see Aslan on the move. That even in the very beginning, we see God beginning to turn back the effects of that cosmic treason. Yes, sin and death will still come. Yes, the expulsion of the garden still happens. But God already begins to launch his counterattack, which is fulfilled at Advent. And it's right there in verse 15. Again, 3.15. I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her ultimate offspring. And that offspring shall bruise the head of the serpent. He'll crush the head of the serpent. And he shall only bruise his heel. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ uh, done by Mel Gibson, you know, there's a lot to like and a lot not to like. You know, it's a movie like anything, so it has some good things, and some things are way Hollywoodized. Uh, but one of the things I think Gibson gets right and uh, takes some artistic liberty in doing so, but I think it's powerful, is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, a serpent kind of winds its way to the grass. And, you know, Jesus sees it, and he steps on his head, and he crushes it. And again, it's a reference back here to Genesis 3.15. This is the, the picture. This is uh, the project, the salvation project, if you will, that God begins at the moment of our fall. That again, in the fullness of time, when the prophecies of old reach their fulfillment, one would come. That just as Adam led the human race into rebellion, a second, greater Adam would come and he would lead the rescue back to God. The great serpent crusher, the great dragon slayer, Christ Jesus, would come to set us free, would come to release the captive, would come to vanquish the darkness, would come to restore everlasting peace and bring us back to the garden. You see, Advent marks the beginning of his arrival, the beginning of his campaign 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. Again, how does that song go? To end the lonely exile, to free us from Satan's tyranny, to disperse the gloomy clouds of night, to put death's dark shadows to flight, to open wide our heavenly home and close the path to misery. O come, O come, Emmanuel. So the question for all of us this Advent, 
is do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see? Do you know what I know? The child, the child, sleeping in the night, he has brought us goodness and light. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your rescue. We thank you, Lord, that the story of stories is true. All the stories of this world, all the songs, the tales that capture our imagination, if we're honest, we want them to be true. We want there to be a great king who comes for his people. We want there to be a great dragon slayer. We want there to be that Jedi who comes and vanquishes the darkness, overcomes the evil empire. Lord, may we remind ourselves this day that story is true. That story is more true than we can ever imagine. And that the goodness of the rescuer goes far beyond any character the movies of this world could paint. That the depths of that rescue go far beyond any song. For you, the living God, the God of all the universe, the God of creation, came down, came down to our level, came down to this world to do for us what we can never do for ourselves, to live that perfect life, to die that atoning death, and to rise ultimately for our pardon, for our reconciliation, to signal to the watching world, to signal even to the world unseen that good had triumphed over evil, that a rescue had been effected, that salvation was possible, that the gates to paradise have been thrown wide open for all who believe that a destiny back to the garden of God is what's in store for all who trust in the Christ child, the one given for us. So again, Lord, this Advent season, as we look at these stories and these building blocks which ultimately culminate in the great arrival of Christ, may you again encourage our hearts, remind us, perhaps teach us for the first time that this story is true. It's the story of stories. and We find ourselves a part of it. Again, only because of your amazing grace. So we love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.